demonstrating beyond Olympic strength. The lead starts right now. How much is a little girl worth? Emotional and powerful testimony today from elite gymnasts about Larry Nassar's abuse, saying the FBI and so many others failed to protect hundreds of girls and young women. Law enforcement on edge with another right-wing rally planned outside the Capitol this week in support of the January 6th insurrectionists. What the organizer is claiming to CNN Plus, the FDA about to decide whether you need another COVID shot. And it is expected to get contentious with dueling data and a president who already tipped the scales. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with heartbreaking and sobering and, frankly, infuriating testimony on Capitol Hill. Four-star U.S. gymnasts appearing in front of the U.S. Senate discussing how the FBI grossly mishandled investigations into the sexual abuse they suffered at the hands of disgraced Dr. Larry Nasser. But they also made it clear there is a long list of adults who failed them. To be clear, I blame Larry Nasser. And I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. Today, I ask you all to hear my voice. I ask you, please do all that is in your power to ensure that these individuals are held responsible and accountable for ignoring my initial report, for lying about my initial report, and for covering up for a child molester. This is arguably the biggest scandal in the history of athletics. A Justice Department Inspector General's review found FBI officials investigating the allegations against Nasser violated multiple policies by failing to properly document complaints about the abusers or by lying about it. Tellingly, the department never pursued charges against the FBI agents, though today, just hours before the hearing, CNN learned that at least one agent had been fired in recent weeks. John Manley, an attorney who represents a number of Nasser's victims, says that the fact that this agent perjured himself and was not charged with a crime sends a message to other agents that they can lie and get away with it. During Larry Nasser's trial in 2017, as you may recall, more than 150 women and girls testified that Nasser abused them, and now the victims want answers. They want answers about why their complaints about his abuse, which dates back to the 1990s, were ignored by so many for so long. FBI Director Christopher Wray told Nasser's victims today that he is, quote, deeply and profoundly sorry, but as CNN's Gene Casares reports for us now, Wray also admitted he does not have a good explanation for how or why the FBI failed so horribly. They had legal, legitimate evidence of child abuse and did nothing. I felt pressured by the FBI to consent to Nasser's plea deal. I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system. Why? Why would the FBI agents lie to OIG investigators? Michaela Maroney, Ali Reisman, Simone Biles, and Maggie Nichols, elite gymnasts and members of the Olympics United States gymnastics team, giving emotional testimony ripping the FBI for failing to protect them from their sexual abuser. I was so shocked at the agent's silence and disregard for my trauma. The survivors of Larry Nassar have a right to know why their well-being was placed in the jeopardy by these individuals who chose not to do their jobs. 
It was like serving innocent children up to a pedophile on a silver platter. One by one, the decorated gymnasts told their stories, recounted the years of abuse by Larry Nasser, the former USA Gymnastics team doctor. I sit before you today to raise my voice so that no little girl must endure what I, the athletes at this table, and the countless others who needlessly suffered under Nasser's guise of medical treatment, which we continue to endure today. That evening, I was naked, completely alone, with him on top of me, molesting me for hours. I told them I thought I was going to die that night because there was no way that he would let me go. He turned out to be more of a pedophile than he was a doctor. Nasser is currently serving a 40 to 175-year state prison sentence after 150 women and girls came forward to expose he abused them over the course of 20 years. But today's congressional hearing, a result of the scathing report from the Justice Department's Inspector General's office, revealing FBI officials investigating the allegations against Nasser, made false statements and failed to properly document complaints by the accusers at the time. Not only did the FBI not report my abuse, but when they eventually documented my report 17 months later, they made entirely false claims about what I said. One FBI agent already fired, Michael Langman, according to the Washington Post, interviewed Maroney in 2015 about her allegations of sexual abuse by Nasser and is accused of failing to launch a proper investigation. The FBI's handling of the Nasser case is a stain on the Bureau. FBI Director Christopher Wray, who did not lead the Bureau at the time, also being grilled today. What am I missing here? This man is on the loose molesting children, and it appears that it's being lost in the paperwork of the agency. I share your bewilderment. I share your outrage, and, and I don't have a good explanation for you. Ray apologizing to the victims and vowing to do more. It's my commitment to you that I and my entire senior leadership team are going to make damn sure everybody at the FBI remembers what happened here in heartbreaking detail. The Department of Justice was invited here today to testify. They declined. Senator Richard Blumenthal said that since they didn't show up, it appears as though they don't care about the abuse of little girls. And CNN has just learned minutes ago that the Attorney General Merrick Garland will appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee in October. But at this point, Jake, they have declined all prosecutions in this case. CNN's Gene Casares, thank you so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss retired FBI Special Agent Jeff Lanza and 25-year FBI veteran Jane Turner, who became a whistleblower to report the FBI's mishandling of crimes against children. Uh, Jeff, let's start with the Indianapolis field office of the FBI. Learning there were three allegations against Larry Nasser. the office was told all three females were minors, all three were available to be interviewed, but the Indianapolis field office of the FBI only spoke to one victim, and they did that on the phone. Was this just mishandled from the beginning? I mean, how do you make any sense of that? You can't make sense of it, Jake. In fact, that's, it was mishandled right from that very point. So the FBI has a Crimes Against Children initiative in every field office, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's just appalling to me, and it doesn't make sense to me, that if Nasser had sent a photo of himself over the Internet 
to a minor, the FBI would have been at his door within a day or two with a search warrant. He would have been under arrest, but yet he's physically abusing people in person and he's and nothing happens. The initial interview, Jake, should have been done in person, number one, not telephonically as it was. It should have been done with a female agent present and someone with experience in sexual abuse cases. Now, the FBI may not have had federal jurisdiction to, to move that case further further down the line, and the Department of Justice may have said, we, we have nothing to prosecute on federally, but it should have gone to a local agency and there should have been follow-up. Michigan has a Bureau of Professional Licensing that could have been, if that was referred to them, they could have put Nasser, uh, uh, suspended his license, and it would have stopped right there. None of those things were done, and any, any one of those things could have could have prevented further abuse. And Jane, uh, Allie Raisman said that it initially took the FBI more than 14 months to contact her after she requested to be interviewed by investigators. Maggie Nichols said she was not interviewed by the FBI for more than a year after she reported the abuse. I mean, I understand that we, we, none of us find this acceptable. Uh, all of us are appalled. But can you give us any insight as to why this might be? Do they just not take complaints of sexual abuse from young women seriously i I just i can't even come up with an idea as to as to i mean are are they overworked what what do you think uh thank you mr tapper for having me on uh tonight i i really appreciate this opportunity uh to speak because i think it's critical my sympathy my heart goes out to these victims but I, I did look at the director Ray's uh, uh, speech, and it was full of platitudes. Uh, having 25 years as a special agent and then another 20 years as a whistleblower advocate for the National Whistleblower Center, uh, I have a lot of knowledge about what is going on. And the fact I blew the whistle uh, 20 years ago about this same thing, except it was on Indian reservations. They took no action. Uh, we had a, uh, a special agents who were covering up the sexual abuse of children as car accidents. It was written up by Stephen Cohn of Cone Cohn and Calapinto, sent in to uh, the IDs, to the Attorney General. They did nothing, and to the FBI. It spoke of how uh, this agent did nothing. We had complaints from uh, the doctor whose staff was traumatized. And I'll tell you the reason uh, most don't. And in fact, Mike Gazumer, uh, certainly he was just released from the FBI for complaining about uh, a sexual predator in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has Protect the FBI. It's his organization. Most agents do not find this type of crime sexy. It's not what they signed up for. They want to bust down doors. They want to, you know, go out there and and kick people. And this is not in their wheelhouse. They don't want it in their wheelhouse. Hmm. I had agents tell me that. Uh, They're just not interested in doing that uh, kind of work. Uh, Director Ray, I'm sure he's a very well-meaning director, but as uh, most agents say, Directors come and go, but his uh, executive staff is going to stay t- uh, forever. And the culture yeah. has got to change. And, and, the and, culture and, there is not good. And, and Jeff, uh, Ali Raisman testified about some of the long-term harm that's come from how this investigation uh, was handled. Uh, take a listen. The FBI made me feel like my abuse didn't count and it wasn't a big deal. 
And um, I, I remember sitting there with the FBI agent and, and him trying to convince me that it wasn't that bad. And it's taken me years of therapy to realize that my abuse was bad, that it does matter. I mean, it certainly seems, Jeff, that the FBI agents did not take this seriously at all, even when they were meeting with the survivors. Yeah, to- totally inappropriate uh, to try to talk someone down off of what what they're saying is, has happened to them. And the, the fact that he, he was he was doing this interview by, over the phone, you know, creates part of the problem. But still, female agent there present with uh, with experience in these sexual abuse cases would have been a lot more helpful. And even without that, there's no way that he should have treated her that way. This is a victim uh, and you don't treat victims that way. And totally inappropriate. No excuse at all for that for that type of interview. Jeff Lanza and Jane Turner, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your, your insights. Uh, law enforcement is bracing for violence. Just minutes ago, the organizer of the upcoming right-wing rally spoke to CNN. The promise he's making that law enforcement is pretty skeptical about. That's next. Plus, the sad new reality, CNN spoke with Afghan women now in hiding due to terrifying threats from the Taliban. That's ahead. Breaking for breaking news for you in our national lead, the Pentagon says that Capitol Police have requested assistance from the D.C. National Guard ahead of the right-wing protest expected this Saturday. That rally planned in support of the insurrectionists charged in the deadly January 6th Capitol riot. CNN's Jessica Schneider just spoke with the organizer of the event. And, and Jessica, I don't need to tell you, law enforcement is clearly concerned about this event turning violent, as the one in January 6th surely did. Uh, What did the organizer have to say about that? Yeah, they're taking all precautions for this. But I've spoken numerous times over the past week to this organizer. So a little bit about him first. His name is Matt Brainerd. He's actually a Trump campaign staffer from back in 2016. He left the campaign after just a few months. And after that, he started this Look Ahead America group. It's mostly touting conservative causes. Now, what he is saying is he is assuring me that there will not be any violence. He's expecting this rally to have about... 500 to 700 people. And he's saying there won't be any violence because he's stressing it to his supporters. He's blasted out tweets about this, saying that everyone should be respectful toward law enforcement. He's reminding people that it is a felony to bring any weapons to Washington, D.C. And he's also reminding people that this is a rally that is just fighting for justice, in his words, for those capital insurrectionists who have been charged. But again, law enforcement is still concerned. They're taking all precautions, putting up a fence around the Capitol, much like they did after January 6th. Here's what he said about those concerns from law enforcement. We learned that law enforcement is preparing for some people on Saturday to be armed. What are you doing to ensure there's no violence? We've got a largely peaceful crowd. We've had two events in Washington, D.C. so far at the Department of Justice and at the prison, and there have been no incidences so far. No one's going to be bringing in a weapon who's going to be part of our crowd. I can assure the police that. But still, Jake, of course, law enforcement taking no chances here. Now, I have spoken with extremism experts who have been tracking some chatter online, but they say it's a far cry from what they saw leading up to January 6th, and they're not really expecting large crowds here. So it could just be a few hundred people, but of course, it just takes one person to cause issues or to cause violence. Well, he's saying this is not going to be violent, but he is demonstrating in support of people who were violent, uh, the January 6th insurrectionists who have been charged with crimes 
uh, related to that violence. What, what does he say about these people he's, he's rallying in support of? Yeah, and the rally itself is called Justice for January 6th. So he is rallying to help those people who were charged on January 6th. He wants the charges dropped. He's written letters to the Department of Justice and the FBI stressing just that. That's what this rally is all about. But I pressed him on his false point that these people should have these charges dropped because they did nothing wrong. Here it is. You're calling them political prisoners, but these are people who were charged under the Trump DOJ. These are people who, in some cases, assaulted police officers and or illegally entered the Capitol. So why would they be exonerated? The vast majority of the nearly 600 people who have been arrested have not been charged with any violence. They've been charged with expressing their First Amendment rights in a public building at the wrong place at the wrong time. These are buildings where people ordinarily can walk even today without any incident. And the fact that they are being treated so harshly and being held in solitary confinement for nine months without access to medical care. Let me stop you right there. So the people who are the people who are still in jail. No, you no, you ask the question. I get to answer it. I'm going to answer it. I'm going to answer it until I'm done speaking or this interview is over. The interview, in fact, continued, Jake. But the point is that they're really conflating issues here. You know, the, the fact is 600 plus people have been charged. All of them have been charged because they either breached the Capitol illegally or they assaulted officers. And to my point, what I was trying to make in the interview, the people who are still in jail, those people, it's just about a, a dozen or so, they committed violent crimes or they're accused of committing violent crimes. So his premise that people are being held in jail for just maybe trespassing in the Capitol, it's just false. It's a lie. What a surprise. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss CNN's national security analyst, Julia Kayyem. She's also the former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Julia, this, this former Trump campaign staffer turned rally organizer, he calls the January 6th rioters uh, political prisoners. He's not alone uh, in making that uh, claim. We, we've heard that from uh, members of Congress, Republicans, of course. How concerning is that notion uh, to Homeland Security? So I think the notion is is worse than probably what's going to happen on Saturday. I think this Capitol Police show of force, they've just requested the National Guard, so the Pentagon's rec- uh, considering that. I think that is uh, different than the lie that keeps on lying, because what they're now doing is claiming that the people being held because of January 6th are freedom fighters. That is simply not true. Now, there are people, I'm willing to admit, who are what we call the noisy trespassers, just people who sort of ended up on the Capitol Hill. They didn't know what was going on. They got swept in the moment. Those people, for the most part, are not in jail. The people that are in jail are what, you know, are either the organizers or people who who there's pictures of them uh, being violent. So this is the lie that just keeps online. I mean, it just it just it keeps feeding it and it will not go away. Uh, until either the groups are dismantled by arrest or stopping their funding um, uh, or and or the party festering it and embracing it, the GOP begins to recognize that um, it's not going to stop unless they do something. They keep thinking they're going to placate it. Yeah. And I think that a lot of GOP members, it just doesn't go away. No. Just, I mean, you never make Trump happy. No, totally. To- uh, telling these lies yeah. and, and placating these lies are like eating Doritos. It just keeps one after the other yeah. after the other. Do you yeah. buy Brainerd's mm-hmm. promise that the rally will not include weapons? I, I think he's saying that to protect himself from a conspiracy charge. So everyone has to realize that. So he's saying, I never told them to do that. But if you actually look on the Internet and what's going on, this has now been embraced by 
uh, groups that are known to be arms, armed groups or groups that use weapons. So so he's just doing that for his own self-preservation. But all you need to do is uh, know that he worked for Donald Trump. Donald Trump con- uh, continues to, uh, to cultivate the lie. Donald Trump continues to use the word fight and stolen. Those are words that his people understand to mean violence. And then the GOP continues to cultivate it because they think it helps them win elections or at least primaries at this stage. We don't we don't know. We don't prove that they're going to win generals this way, but certainly primaries. Yeah. And that is essentially that that line that's connecting the violence with uh, with the political strategy, which it clearly is now and for Jul- the GOP. Juliet, the Capitol Police have now asked the D.C. National Guard for assistance yeah. on Saturday. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby says they likely want manpower support. Um, what does that tell you about the potential security threat, or is this more just a question of better safe than sorry? Uh, better safe than sorry. It is security theater at this stage. I don't think the numbers are going to be that big, but thank goodness for it. I often thought that on January 6th, if you had had two or 300 National Guard members, you would have cut that rally in you know, by 90%. Because when you actually look at these arrests, most of these people were what I called the noisy trespassers. You want to show a force because we are in the we're not messing around stage. I have gotten more insistent about this over the last couple months. We are not messing around anymore. Uh, you want to you want to call these people freedom fighters. You want a First Amendment rally. Go ahead. Uh, but the National Guard will also uh, uh, make sure that you that you keep to your word. All right, Julia KM, thank you so much. Coming up, a sobering statistic. Thanks, one in every 500 U.S. residents, one in every 500 has died from coronavirus. Now the FDA is about to decide whether booster shots will help those who are vaccinated. Stay with us. In our Healthy Today, uh, it could be contentious when the FDA meets Friday to consider COVID-19 booster shots for those who have already been fully vaccinated. Today, the FDA released a new document that says the benefit is limited if the first and second doses are still effective. This all comes after a slew of conflicting studies on whether a third dose works, whether it's necessary, or what exactly a third dose is supposed to accomplish in the first place. As CNN's Miguel Marquez now reports, the booster debate comes as Pfizer announces they'll be submitting vaccine data for children under 12 soon. Children's hospitals in Ohio overwhelmed with COVID and respiratory cases. Its governor now urging superintendents statewide to mandate masks in schools. We all share the goal of helping our kids, keeping those kids in school. Reasonable people may disagree about a lot of things, but we must do everything we can to keep our children in the classroom. We need our kids in school so they don't fall behind. Ohio has no statewide mandatory mask order for schools. Children are back in school and now on the front line in the battle with COVID-19. In Georgia, outbreaks up nearly seven times in K-12 through schools, making up some 60% of all outbreaks in the state. Schools may drive an increase in cases in the northeastern U.S. as well, says the former head of the FDA. We're still here in the Northeast due for some surge of infection from the Delta variant. I don't think that we're through it. This, as the WHO says, cases worldwide have declined slightly. And data from Johns Hopkins University confirms one in 500 U.S. residents have now died from COVID-19. And booster shots for many Americans under consideration by FDA advisors isn't a done deal. 
Many experts unsure the data is there to back up widespread use of boosters. There's this debate by a good number of the FDA scientists saying, listen, guys, slow down. This vaccine is doing its job. It's preventing people from falling really sick and dying. And Pfizer CEO says it will submit data to the FDA by month's end on how the vaccine works in 5 to 11-year-olds. They hope to get the go-ahead soon after to start putting shots into arms. It is up to FDA to take their time and then make the decision. And the NBA joining other professional sports leagues in not requiring vaccinations for players, but requiring them for coaches, game day personnel and referees. And Lion King, Hamilton and other Broadway shows turning back on the lights. I don't ever want to take live theater for granted ever again, do you? And now the Moderna vaccine, those that manufacture the Moderna vaccine, said that they've concluded a small study that shows that boosters with the Moderna vaccine can safely increase immunity in people who have had the double dose already. And it is worth underscoring that this is now a situation that we are in where kids and schools will be a big driver of this Delta variant and of the coronavirus until we get the uh, handle on it and how schools handle it at the local level where there are mask orders and everything else you can do to keep them safe. It's going to be a, a, a telling sign in the weeks and months ahead. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a cardiologist and professor at George Washington University Medical Center, a frontline healthcare physician. We should, we should note that as that, you, you got the booster. I did. I, I got a booster a few weeks ago. Uh, I was vaccinated along with most of my colleagues right at the beginning. So almost nine months ago, we got our first shots. And when you look at the uh, data on how the antibodies wane, uh, and how the effectiveness of the vaccine wanes. The, uh, Israeli data suggests that every two months, the effectiveness of the vaccine wanes about 6%. Uh, and as a frontline healthcare person who works in a hospital every day with people both exposed to COVID and with COVID, uh, I made the choice to get vaccinated. But do you think it would be different for, let's say, me? Uh, I yeah. am not a frontline physician. Right. Uh, I, the danger and risk for me is, is much less. Um, and I guess this is one of the debates. Nobody really disputes the idea that at-risk groups, which includes yeah. frontline healthcare workers, should get the boosters. I mean, that's not, that's not really the debate. The debate is whether everyone should have to get the booster. I think eventually everyone will get the booster. So, so the question is, how do, we, how do we start with this? So the FDA has already approved boosters for people who have been vaccinated, but where the vaccine hasn't really produced enough antibodies. So that's the immunocompromised. So if you're immunocompromised, you're a solid uh, organ transplant patient, you take an immune modulating agent for something like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, multiple sclerosis, you can get uh, boosted today at, at your local Walgreens or CVS. Then the question is, what about for people where the immunity is waning, people who got vaccinated several months ago, right. which groups should be boosted now? Uh, the question is, what is your risk? And the Israelis believe that most people should be vaccinated. They certainly believe that the elderly should be vaccinated because the Israeli data showed that when you looked at who was getting really sick, which vaccinated patients who were getting breakthrough infections were getting hospitalized or getting into ICUs, it turns out it was the elderly. So, yeah. they, so they chose to, to, use, to vaccinate that group first. I bet the FDA uh, does that as well. The big problem is that the U.S. has a dearth of information. We are relying on outside sources like the Israelis. And you would think that 
with 40 million documented infections and uh, 150,000 new infections a day, the CDC would have much more robust data on who is getting infected, what vaccines uh, they received, when they got them, but we don't have them. Mm-hmm. We need that data. Yeah. Pfizer today said data on vaccines for kids 5 to 11 should be submitted by the end of September. If all goes well, how soon do you think we're going to see uh, kids 11 and younger getting shots in arms? I hope soon. Uh, last week, there were 243,000 uh, infections in, in kids. That's about a 240% increase since the middle of July. That's the reservoir for this virus. Uh, the FDA has a, has a process which we want them to go through. We want them to go through with a sense of urgency, which I know they have. Uh, but in vaccinating children, you have to get the dose right. We want a dose that not just uh, produces an effective immunity, but a dose that is safe. And we need to know that. So the FDA will go through their process. Uh, Pfizer uh, believes that they have the data that supports licensing a vaccine for uh, children starting at age five and then eventually age six months and older. Uh, I expect that we'll probably start getting uh, shots into kids' arms, uh, hopefully before Thanksgiving. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As always, coming up next, President Biden just weighed in after some shocking revelations about how America's top general was worried that then-President Trump would go rogue with nukes. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, this afternoon, President Biden said that he has great confidence in General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This comes despite a chorus of Republicans demanding Milley's resignation. The rapidly escalating fight was sparked by revelations in Bob Woodward and Bob Costa's upcoming book, Peril, about the chaotic final days of the Trump presidency. CNN's Brian Todd has more on the revelations and the context and the response. The now embattled Joint Chiefs chairman for the moment has the backing of his president. I have great confidence in General Milley. Nonetheless, the pressure on Army General Mark Milley has ramped up exponentially following revelations in the new book Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa of The Washington Post. Republicans in Congress calling for Milley to be tossed out, even court-martialed if the allegations are true. They're furious over the reporting in the book that General Milley, right after the January 6th assault on the Capitol, called a secret meeting at the Pentagon to review the process for military action, including launching nuclear weapons that Milley instructed top military officials not to take orders from anyone, including then-President Donald Trump, unless Milley was involved. Woodward and Costa report Milley, quote, was certain that Trump had gone into a serious mental decline in the aftermath of the election, with Trump now all but manic, screaming at officials and constructing his own alternate reality about endless election conspiracies. That rationale doesn't cut it with Republicans like Senator Marco Rubio. It is the essence, a military coup, for lack of a better term. That's what it would equate to. I don't think there's any doubt that at a minimum he should be fired if this is true. Woodward and Costa also wrote that General Milley was so fearful Trump would start a war with China in the final months of his administration that twice in that period Milley secretly called his Chinese counterpart to reassure him that the United States would not strike China. Responding to that, in an interview with Newsmax, Trump leveled a serious accusation at Milley. That's treason. I've had so many calls today saying, that's treason. Conductor. General Milley's office now defends his calls with his Chinese counterpart, saying they were part of a series of calls with America's allies and adversaries at that time, quote, in order to maintain strategic stability. 
A defense official tells CNN those calls were not done in secret and followed the same protocols used by other chairmen of the Joint Chiefs. Former President Trump, in addition to calling General Milley's reported actions treason, has issued a statement calling the Joint Chiefs chairman a, quote, dumbass, weak and ineffective, who Trump says concocted a fake news story with, the, with two authors who Trump says he refused to give an interview to because they write fiction, not fact, in his words. Jake. Yep, of course, he's the one that writes fiction. Right. Uh, Brian Todd, thanks so much. She says she's not afraid of death, but when the Taliban find her, she hopes they kill her quickly. That's what one women's rights activist in Afghanistan is now telling CNN. And we're live in Kabul with that story next. In our world lead today, ever since last month's Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, women activists fearing for their lives have been forced into hiding. And now, despite the danger, some of them are agreeing to speak out. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Kabul with their stories of bravery and desperation. In happier times, Taranom Saidi saved children from abuse paid for it with profits from a construction company she built. Now she is in hiding from the Taliban in fear for her life. They are trying to threaten us and execute us secretly, as they did to many of my female friends. Her crime, in the Taliban's eyes, protest, taking to the streets two weeks ago, demanding equal rights. She was beaten and bruised. Ever since, Taliban death threats have stalked her. So much fear, she now hopes if death comes, it's fast. I'm not afraid of death, but I wish when they find me, they kill me quickly. If they torture me first, then they will kill me without any honour. Everyone wants to die with dignity. Before the Taliban, she was well-known, popular, ran for parliament, might have been elected, if not for endemic corruption. She hoped her high profile might save her. Now has no idea what to do. How long can I be brave? How long do we have to fight? In fact, fight with whom? With whom to talk? With whom to discuss? We are in darkness with no way to get to a brighter future. Across the country, many more women like Saidi hide in fear of the Taliban. They share old and new social media posts of arbitrary abuse. They are both hard to verify and the Taliban deny. For now, though, it's the only way the women can protest their plight. Everything is at stake right now because, because we are actually facing a situation that we are so disliked by a group of uh, people who are actually running this country. They can't even look at us. Mabuba Siraj is Afghanistan's highest-profile women's rights activist. She returned from the U.S. when the Taliban were ousted two decades ago. She won't leave again, she says. We'll stay here to defend women, get the world's attention. They're going to make problems. They're going to raise their voices. They're going to start, you know, they, they can... The world is becoming a very small place but now. These are brutal guys with guns who turn them on crowds. Uh, it's true. But for how long? They're going to be killing everybody? Is that what they want to do? Saidi is facing an agonizing choice. She is the breadwinner, 
Her brother's family and the abused children she rescued depend on her. They need me, so I need to be strong. And that's really hard. But to stay is to risk death. We tried a lot to have a better Afghanistan, to have a better life, to have a better future. In fact, me and my friends didn't expect that one day we will be forced to leave our own country. But they took everything from us. What happens now, she says, depends on her calls for help to the US, the UK, Canada and others. If she does leave, Saidi vows to fight on. Any thought that the Taliban 2.0, this new version of the Taliban, might be different to women, I think evaporates when you sit in a room uh, with someone like uh, Ms. Saidi. The fear that she's in, the awfulness of it, 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 pervades, the, it pervades the whole, the whole space. Um, you know, these are brave women. She was a brave woman to, sp- to speak out. And she, I think in her heart of hearts, as much as she wants to stay, she desperately hopes that the United States or Britain or Canada or any other countries she's asking for help do pluck her out of this situation. She just doesn't see another way out right now, Jake. Nick Robertson in Kabul with that important story. Thank you so much, Nick. Coming up in moments, President Biden expected to speak on an urgent national security issue. We'll bring that to you live. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.